Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Good Humans Podcast with me, Cooper Chapman, chatting to the world's best about the inspiring stories that got them to where they are today. What's going on, you good humans? Welcome to guest episode 142 of Good Humans Podcast with a very new friend of mine and somebody who I'm sure you're going to hear more of on this podcast, and that is Tom Greer-Smith. Tom is a performance psychologist, and he's had a really interesting story, which you guys are going to love. Uh, this last couple of weeks has been massive for me. I'm getting well and truly into my 100 days to 100Ks uh running program and one of the things that I've been doing every single morning when I wake up is taking a few of the uh, drink a rapper capsules um, and then I've been doing a workout whether it be uh, legs or core or upper body workout or every second day I have different runs whether they're 5k's 10k's or trail runs on the weekend for about 20 30k's and I come back from the runs and I always have a protein shake where I also put the drink a rapper powder in it the powder form's amazing. You can kind of load up your yogurt, your muesli, or your smoothies and, yeah, get all that positive stuff that is packed into Drink a Rapper, all the neuroscience, all the positive benefits you're going to get. Uh, you can find out all about on their website. So if you head over to drinkarepper.com, use the code GOODHUMAN over on their website. You can check out the capsules. You can check out the powder or just their ready-to-drink drinks. I love this stuff. It's super tasty, but the best thing is it's all based by neuroscience and um, yeah, lots of really important ingredients that can help make your brain perform better short-term, but also um, improve long-term brain health. So use code GOODHUMAN over on their website, a big 25% off. You can also learn about the science and yeah, about the benefits you're going to see. So go check that out. Also, obviously, this podcast has been around for quite some time and I would love it if you could do me a huge favor. Hit that like or subscribe button if you haven't already. Share the podcast with a friend. Leave us a little review on Apple or on uh, Spotify. Now you can interact with each episode. Means the world to me to know you guys are getting stuff out of this. And yeah, I'm obviously getting so many benefits from it too. So today's episode with Tom Greer-Smith is a really fun one. So Tom being a performance psychologist, I wanted to get him on to talk about how I can take better care of my mind and overcome the psychological challenges that are going to come when I do this 100-kilometer race. So Tom is the sports psychologist at Surfing Australia. He's since started since I had left competing surfing, and he seems to be doing incredible work there. But his story wasn't always about surfing. It wasn't ever at all about surfing until recently, actually. So Tom used to be a professional tennis player, went to college over in America, and had such a fascinating story, studied kinesiology, and then once he got back to Australia after a stint in Hawaii doing some really interesting stuff, which you're going to find so fascinating in this episode. But once he got home from Hawaii after doing college there, he was like, you know what? I want to help people. I want to understand the human um, potential more and got into psychology where he went and worked in the rural North Queensland communities and helped people with their mental health, which was a massive eye opener for me learning about what was going on there. But also for Tom to share his experience was really powerful. But then he got into performance psychology where he's found himself now working at Surfing Australia and doing some amazing stuff. 
But what I loved about this chat was getting to ask him about the impact of exercise on our mental health. Also, how I can maybe silence some of those thoughts inside my head and how I can best manage myself over across this 100 kilometer race. So epic episode. You guys are going to love it. If you do love it, make sure you share it on your Instagram story. Send me a DM and uh, let me know what you think because I absolutely love interacting with you legends who listen to the podcast. And I'm really excited to bring you the next 13 weeks of experts, but also inside my journey when it comes to the 100 kilometer run. So Let's jump into today's episode. Welcome to Good Humans Podcast, Tom Greer-Smith. How you going, brother? Good, mate. Thanks for having me. Mate, thank you for coming over to my little at-home studio. We just had a little walk, grabbed the coffee, I had a little bit of brekkie, yeah. and here we are having a chat. It's um, it's a pretty exciting time for me in my life. I'm, what, 13 weeks out from running a 100-kilometer race, so I'm in this midst of doing 100 days to 100Ks, and I've been wanting to speak to people who could maybe help me on my journey a little bit with their expertise and you're a performance psychologist you work down at surfing australia which is where i um yeah got introduced to you through a few other friends of mine and in pacific um michelle mitchell who is the lead she's amazing yeah she's amazing she's been a guest on this podcast she's been a guest she's uh she's incredible but we got connected and we kind of to be honest i kind of not duck and weaved you but i like found your (laughs) message in one of my like unread folders on instagram i was like oh yes we've got to catch up this will be perfect for the podcast so we're going to have a chat today, a bit about your story, but then we're also going to get into, I guess, performance psychology and how my listeners and my community can maybe get more out of their psychology, out of their brain, out of the way they think. So the first question I do open with is, what are you grateful for right now in your life there? I mean, firstly, I'm grateful to be here and to chat with you and and to um, talk about this really interesting stuff. Um, I feel that in today's society that there is a lot of information out there but some, some of it is um, sometimes hard to digest and sometimes there's too much information. So I'm thankful for, for mediums like this where we can actually have long format discussions and actually get into the nitty-gritty of things. Mm. So I guess I'm, I'm grateful for podcasts in general. I'm, I'm grateful that I've had the opportunity in my life to be exposed to a lot of information um, and I'm grateful to be able to share that information, hopefully in a fairly concise and digestible manner. Mate, well, I can't wait. That's one of my favorite things to do is speak to people like you who have spent <laughs> a lot of time gathering incredible knowledge and information around topics that are going to make people's lives better if you can take it seriously and really yeah. try and digest it. So I'm excited to get stuck into the chat. Another thing that I love is Drink a Rapper. I was just showing you off air the brain drink. These guys have been sponsoring the podcast for a while. So I always start the podcast with a little a rapper cheers. So if you want yeah. to open up your little fizzy ones, always good to wet the lips as well before having a... Yeah, we can cheers this thing and get stuck in. Fizzy. Mm. Yeah. I'll leave you with a case or two and you can try it out for a week yeah. and see what you think from a psychology sure. point of view. It's always nice when we have people um who are really smart like you, far smarter than me, oh. giving us some um, product reviews and thinking, seeing what you think of the product. So I'm, I'm yeah. excited to see what you think of it. I'll let you know. But man, the first place I usually go with my guests is back in time a little bit. You said before we started, you haven't really ever gone there in a podcast. No. It's always really talking about your expertise, which is what I love. I've spoken to a lot of experts in fields, but I think people can be a lot more related or relate a lot more to a guest if they understand sort of what they've gone through, where they came from. And also it can give people a lot of credibility, I believe, once we know their journey and the ups and downs that you've probably had to go through and learn from to get to where you are today. So let's go back to the start. <laughs> Where'd you grow up? What was life like? Let's talk up until high school. Family life, how's um, how life as a kid? Yeah, and, and even on that, to backtrack slightly, 
it was our good friend Michelle Mitchell who has done so much work with you and was yeah. all about storytelling and she's been the one that's been encouraging me to because I would because as a psych it's all about the client mm. and so you never talk about yourself and you're certainly trained to do that so it, it doesn't necessarily come supernaturally for sure but um but Michelle will be proud that we're, <laughs> we're jumping in there um yeah grew up on the coast um Gold and coast. yeah on the Gold Coast um. My grandparents had a place right near Corumban Bird Sanctuary. So I remember riding my bike around there and, and um, they were members at um, Corumban Surf Club and spent a lot of time there growing up um, and then went to, to school at, um, at Coomera. And then... Um, Where at Coomera? Coomera Anglican. I went there yesterday. No way, really? <laughs> what were you doing at CAC? Uh, uh, <laughs> they had um, Tommy Herschel, who's a... Ex school teacher, but also runs programs at schools for like young men and opening right. up called Find Your Feet. And he okay. did a program there yesterday for the year eight boys. And he asked me to come and um, join in and have a little right. watch with him. What are the chances? Boy, was, a small world. Yeah, I was just talking about this morning. Yeah. I've been there. Yeah. Um, that was eight to 10. And, um, and then uh, played a lot of rugby, played a lot of tennis, a lot of cricket. And, uh, and then I transferred to Coomba in for 11 and 12 mainly because cac at the time didn't have math c if you remember there was like a b and c i don't know top level maybe it's different i'm at what two years younger than you you worked out i turned 30 this year you said you're 31 when we were chatting before so maybe different different new south wales queensland's a bit different so they didn't have like the nerd um maths and they wouldn't let me um finish at one o'clock to go train um for for tennis so kumba sports excellence school could finish every day at one and go to training, be there at one thirty. Wow. So what got you into tennis as a youngster? Were you into many other sports? Were you into the ocean and surfing? What what drew you to tennis? Um, probably mum. Mum, mum and grandma just massive um tennis fans. Um they played a lot. Mum was was a decent level. Um and but I was actually better at cricket when I was younger and was making state sides and stuff for that and was playing tennis as well, just was kind of all right at it. And uh, probably got a little bit over the the politics in uh, in cricket, and mm-hmm. thought in tennis, if you beat the person at the end of the day, then you make the team and you make the spot, and it's nice and simple. Bit more cutthroat. Yeah, yeah. So um, I kind of made a decision about fourteen to um, to follow my passion in tennis. Um, bit which, more money in tennis. Actually, cricket's got a fair bit of money as well, huh? Well, now with the yeah, IPL, yeah, yeah, far wasn't out back wasn't then. that back then? Um, but yeah, and I think it's important because I speak to a lot of um, parents um, about when they should specialize in a single sport. Mm. I think there's there's so much research that that shows specializing too early and trying to predict talent too early in one um, area isn't the best way to get um, long-term performance in, in adulthood, that it's actually really good for kids to play multiple different sports. There's There's more engagement for different muscle groups and neurologically as well. Um, so you're learning to use different neural patterns doing those different sports. I think it's very beneficial. Um, and it's supposed to be fun till probably till you're about 12 or 13. Mm. Um, it's all sports should be fun. Yeah. And then if the kid chooses and that they have a sense of autonomy and agency over what they want to do, then great. Then you can specialize a bit more. And I guess my parents were awesome and really allowed me to do that they i never remember remember them being like you have to train you have to do that i was just a competitive 
little shit. <laughs> Loved it. But also quite academic, right? Is, wait, yeah. Is that what you were saying? They didn't have Mass A, so you Well, yeah, Mass C, I guess, is the other. The, is Yeah. The other but one. I don't know. I just found it easy. Um, and that's just luck. I think that's just genetic luck that, um, yeah, I've, I found. Yeah. The academic side of stuff. <clears throat> yeah, maths and hard, physics. Yeah. So it was, it was funny when I was at Coomabar, um I was mates with all the footy guys and you're sort of in that sports excellence thing and you'd, and you'd hang out with them, but then none of them were in any of my classes because I was doing physics, <laughs> the top two maths and um, engineering stuff and, and doing engineering in high school at the uni. So the uni had this program that if you did two years um, whilst you're in high school with them, you got automatic entry into an engineering degree. Wow. Um, and I did more than 18 months of that, pretty much finished it and thought, not nah. and Not my parents were like, "What are you doing?" And I was like, "No, nah, I'm going to the going to the states. I'm going to play college." You learned what not to do. That that's so interesting. Did you cop any slack at school looking back, like being real smart and your mates not getting in the same class? Or was everyone pretty supportive? I feel like I mean, I went to that school yesterday. All the kids are pretty nice. Sometimes if you're in a school where there is, I don't know. I went to public schools, and if you were like in all the smart classes, it was almost yeah. like you were frowned upon. Yeah, it, it was interesting going from a small private school of CAC eight to ten, yeah, and then transferring to a large public school for eleven and twelve. I think it would have been pretty interesting being in that public school for the younger yeah. grades. But once you get that age, I feel like people have respect for that a bit no. more. You're eleven and twelve; it's all right. Everyone, you're young adults by then, yeah, and um, especially only being there till one o'clock is like. You're in your class. You've yeah, got one break, and then you're there. out. And then I was like the tennis guy. Yeah, and wow. we're off. So I don't really remember copying anything. Oh, that's good. Let's talk about that now. This next stage because it fascinates me. I've had a few friends who have gone to America to college on scholarship for sport. Yeah. Um. Obviously, I grew up as a pro surfer, so I didn't ever have that as an even thought in the side of my mind. What does it look like to go to America to college? How do you apply? What's the steps involved? How good do you have to be in Australia? Like, were you one of the top Aussies at your age to in the country at that time? And like, only a handful get picked in colleges. Like, tell me, yeah. tell me about that process back then. Even like, what thirteen years ago, you went over to America and did college. <laughs> I didn't want to work out how long ago it was. <laughs> um, that seems like a long time now, but um, I think it's sport dependent. Yeah, yeah, obviously, because yeah, I've got a friend who went for water polo. Yeah only yeah five years ago so it still obviously happens all the time but yeah how does that work so in tennis um historically especially for the americans um the collegiate system was a stepping stone to go into the atp or wta yeah um very good training ground to get you ready for the tour yeah um we're kind of seeing younger and younger now like alcaraz being world number one at, at 19 yeah. and you're seeing younger crew come through and so if you're really talented and um ahead of the the game there then you can skip it all skip it all yeah. and go straight on and tennis australia i think definitely prefers that yeah but now you got um like rinky educato's one um that i was with bris saw him doing his stuff in brisbane international earlier he he went through the college system didn't finish i think he did three years and then went on um but Isner and all these um, Johnson, these Americans all went Basically through it. like the competition once you get to that age in Australia, unless you're the freak of nature, yeah. that's the next stepping stone for your career to be trained in American college yeah. system, playing against the best over there from all around the world, probably coming yeah. into that system and being in the college system. Oh. Yeah, so tennis is a bit different where there's so many internationals on the college yeah. um, circuit. That's so it's probably a bit different to football, baseball, basketball, where yeah. it's very domestic. That's what I thought. It must be like 
like you're playing against as good an international club you can play, yeah. I think I maybe played against 10, 15 Americans in my whole time over there. Wow. It's like 95% were internationals. Yeah, interesting. Um, so, yeah, what does that look like? You finish school here in Australia, you apply just through. Like, you have to put up a video. No way. Which I think still on YouTube that I don't want to go look at um, because I had just the, I remember just this stupid backing song that I had to, um, that it's probably still up there. But you you submit a video of your play um, and um, then they look at your, it's, it's academically as well. So you see the SATs. Uh-huh. So I was very fortunate that I got a, quite a good SAT score so I could go anywhere I wanted. So sometimes that happens where academically you kind of get a little bit pigeonholed. Yeah. Um, so, and then they look at nowadays, they're going to be more looking at your ITF ranking. Yeah. Um, the International Tennis Federation yeah. ranking. Um, but I feel in, in Australia, I was kind of a little bit more focused on my academic and I was a mediocre tennis player here. Like I played the Australian money tournaments and the national stuff, but I was kind of, wholesale mediocre yeah i got recruited over there um to texas um i had an agent here that did that so that's the process most people you have an agent yeah and they have connections relationships over there uh-huh. um and then they broker the deals and you get a number of colleges that you're looking at um and then you work out the best deal and you, you know, go, go on a scholarship and go from there um that's how it happens um most often yeah so it's yeah. interesting so you went straight to texas we spoke off air. Didn't love Texas. An interesting time to be in Texas in yeah. 2010. Um, but uh, yeah, I didn't gel well with the coach. Yeah. He was pretty old school. Um, and yeah, well, I needed to be near the ocean. I wanted to move. Um, I think it was good to reflect on actually what I wanted mm-hmm. and what I wanted to be about. Um, and when you get thrust over to, even though America, we speak the same language, it's yeah. a completely Culture different, shock, yeah. especially the South. So <laughs> I was like, I don't know if this place is for me. I think I'd enjoy it a lot more now. Yeah. But uh, at the time at 18, I was like, no, nah, I, I want to change. And um, we, were, we were chatting about this off air. But yeah, the coach at Santa Barbara was like, finish top 10 in the nation, GPA over 3.5, and then we'll give you a scholarship. Um, so I came 11th <laughs> and just missed out on that, but got a GPA of I don't know, 3.8 or something like that. <clears throat> how was that as a psychological hit now that you know what you know? Yeah. How hard was that to deal with when you're 20 years old? You get not promised something, you miss out by that close one spot. Yeah. Don't get offered the scholarship. I mean, hindsight is probably a beautiful thing. And you told me you went to Hawaii and had a great time. Yeah. So, like, at well, the time, was that difficult or were you kind of like, oh, blessing in disguise, you weren't that invested in the tennis career? Well, I actually felt great about it because mm-hmm. what happened was I thought I was quite mediocre in, in Australia. I went to college. My first year in college, they're only the top 70 get ranked. I was outside of that. Um, and so my second year, I, I wanted to transfer and so I was really determined. I put in the effort. I was like, I'm not staying here. And so my game over 12 months was the biggest improvement that it was in my whole career. And I was actually really proud of the wins that I had against some crew that had ATP points. Yeah, wow. And so I was stoked on my level of play and got a whole lot of confidence there and um, kind of just figured, well, he was going to be a bit 
of a dick about it, then mm, you don't want to go there. No, anyway. I don't want to yeah. go there anyway. Yeah. And I had a mate in um in Hawaii, and he was like, mate, talk to a coach here. He's unreal. Really loved what he was about. I was like, I want to play for this guy and, and transferred there. So Hawaii, you did a couple of years there. What stage did you go? You know, what, probably tennis, professional tennis isn't going to be my future. Yeah. And where does um where do you go after college? Yeah, so. I finished up. My final match was I'd lost to this guy earlier in the in the season, and I was really going. Oh, I don't know if this is for me. Um, <clears throat> the The game had changed. The game of tennis has changed. Um, it was so much more weapons. The game was quicker, faster. Serve was so much more prevalent. Um, and I was like, that's probably not for me. And I was questioning it. Absolutely hammered by this one guy. And then the final, my final match, I ended up beating the guy. Um, and it, there's this weird thing in, in, um, team tennis in, in the States where when you're playing, um, the, at the state or national, um, end of, uh, calendar year tournament, it goes on whoever gets to the, um, five out of the, um, cause it's nine, nine, um, matches yeah. rubbers. And if one team gets to that five matches, even though there's other matches on, it stops. Wow. So you could be playing a match and could be winning, but if they get to five first, you just have to stop playing. Ugh. So what actually ended up happening was um, we knew that they, were, they had four matches. We were going to lose as a team. And I was winning, playing out of my skin, my final match, and I was senior, senior year, final match. And the two, two of the matches next to me, they knew that and they were losing. So they did some... You know, <laughs> interesting things. Took some toilet breaks. Like so you could get your so much win. time between points, and kind of you know was in the grey area of morality. And they they bought time, and I won. And then as soon as I won, the they guy won. next to me lost like within the next minute. No. And so I got the win. They had all the lays and everything on me, and did the wonderful Hawaiian um celebration and i was like That's mic me. drop i'm done how good is that Sick. <laughs> i'm out so it was it was a fine i was fine with that amazing and then you so what was the next day did you come back from hawaii to australia no I, I stayed there i had an opportunity to lecture at the university which was just wild and silly as in i just graduated what so what i graduated graduated in with a degree in kinesiology yep. and exercise science um because the head of the department was a sports psych and um, he's like, just stay with me. And so KS 101, 102, basic movement stuff. We pretty much got out and played tennis most of the time. It was, <laughs> it was sweet. But they asked me to write my own curriculum and, um, and mark students and write some tests. And wow, it was a pretty interesting experience. I think I was 22. No, right, running your own. Yeah. I was no. like, I shouldn't be lecturing. Like, <laughs> this is weird. And they kept on calling me sir. And I was like. Uh, How's was the imposter syndrome with that? Well, I just said, look, I haven't been knighted by the Queen yet, so you don't call me Sir. You call me Tom. And <laughs> Mr. Grusin is my dad's name, so. Just, but Americans are wonderfully um, polite, so yeah. they, they struggle with that. But um, I don't know. I think I knew my stuff, so. Nice. I leaned in, um, and then I was assistant coach of the team as well, so that uh -huh. was really cool. My mate, um, the coach, uh, left, and a past alumni guy. We we're in San Diego together, and I said, "Mate, go for the job. I'll be your assistant." He was 25, I was 22. No so we way. found ourselves, he got the job. We kind of did a package deal. We were running the entire men's and women's program with huge budget, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of budget. And he was 25 and I was 22. And we were like, what do we do with this money? Like, how do we recruit people? So then he's like, well, you're head of recruiting. So I'd like go through 
YouTube and try and find the best players around the world. And then I'd do a lot of the on-court training and his background, he had an MBA. So he was like, I'll run the business. No way. You do more of the um, coaching. And then you're lecturing as well as that. And that was just a gig for a while. Were you studying anything else or were you just? No, because then I had an opportunity on the other side of the island um, at this resort called Hualalai, um, Four Seasons. So it was like the rich and the famous tennis resort. Coaching. So there's like the, yeah, tennis coaching. So the number one um, uh, amount of private jets in any airport in America, I believe, or well, at the time was Vegas, yeah. right? At the time, the number two was Kona Airport wow. on the Big Island because there was Hualalai and Kikio next to each other. And they were the most expensive resorts probably. Yeah, because you could buy land there um, and you could then build your home. So they'd fly the private jets in and you'd have, you know, Bill Gates, Michael Dell, and then all the other famous celebrities would build a house there. And then they only had, the, I guess in their mind, like the top tennis coaches to then um, coach these rich and famous people. And I just found a way in. <clears throat> and got the gig and um that was really really interesting to just be around like billionaires millionaires super successful people and it's a very intimate experience when you're the tennis coach because a lot of the time especially the celebrities everyone knows who they are so they go well i don't get to talk to many people about what's going on with me because everyone knows my stuff and they're mm. like you don't know anything about me or anyone that I know, so I can tell you stuff. Yeah. So it was almost like I was counselling, especially with some of them. We barely even played much tennis. Really? Yeah. Wow, that's so interesting. Mm. That, that's so cool. So you're lecturing, running the tennis program, but then also coaching yeah. the rich and famous on the other side of the island. Mm. How long were you doing that for? From 22 to 25 or something? Yeah, just... yeah, for a couple of years. <clears throat> and I really enjoyed it. Um, the... The college stuff, I, I love. I love the team side of it because tennis gets so lonely. Yeah. And and being an individual sport, as I'm sure you can um, appreciate as a pro yeah, surfer. Yeah. Um, so the college had the team aspect. Yeah, to it, loved yeah. it. Loved it. Trying to get the team across. Um, and and then the resort side of it was one like yeah financially it was the thing that was supporting me. Yeah, because the tips are wild. Yeah, the tips are wild. Um, and then the opportunities, and more importantly, what I got to learn, like, there was this one poker game where there was my boss, me, and I think there was five billionaires and one millionaire. And I'd heard about this crazy poker game the year before. And I said to my boss, because he was a Kiwi, and I was like, oh, you have to get me on that table. And he's like, oh, it's like a $200 US buy-in. I'm like, that, that's fine. That's I mean, two hundred sounds very low. Compared yeah, to and then they're doing that. side bets, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're doing side bets for crazy stuff. But it was like head of Goldman Sachs Japan, head of Goldman Sachs North America, and then it was like this wine guy, and this, it was just you would pay Eddie a lot of money. Poker. Well, what what happened was like I haven't no, like I'm not that great. I know the maths. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I haven't played a whole lot, but I can hold my own. Yeah. But I I lost pretty quick because the guy's house that it was he'd started this um uh software company out of his harvard dorm room so i'm sitting there and i'm looking at my cards and a few in and he looks at me and he goes so what are you going to do with that queen three like 
obviously there's he's looked at some probability in what I'm doing and it was a bit of a guess but I had a queen and a three in my hand and I'm like well this is just cooked like I'm playing with geniuses so I lost pretty early but the um, head of Goldman Sachs I think it was North America he goes to me he's like mate I'll buy you back in um, he's like because we've got a lesson tomorrow morning and he's so we knew each other and he's like I'll buy you back in so then I went back in and I just bluffed and just went, I'm just going to go hard. And I got cards and I got lucky and I stayed with them to about 4 a.m. in the morning. No And then way. gave him a lesson at 7 a.m. the next morning. What? What yeah. a sick story. And dude. then he came to me that next morning and said, where's my money? And this guy's worth billions of dollars. No way. Like, like, can I have my buyback in? Well, he said to me, he said, I'll um, buy you back in if you win. Only lend people money and they do work with me if um, my minimum is a million dollars, but I loaned you $200. And I was like, <laughs> well, I was a kid. I was like, what? And so I was like, oh. Well, he gave him the joint back and <laughs> yeah, he yeah, like yeah. a $200 tip at the end of the lesson. But his More thing was. principle probably. Principle and his thing was. He probably taught you a good lesson. Yeah. But then he likes seeing people work under pressure. He said, I tell you what, we'll um, triple it. No, more. I think it was like $800 or $1,000. He said, I'll choose a doubles partner. You choose a doubles partner and we'll play for $1,000 US. But we start at three love or something like that. And I was like, well, that's the drop of the bucket to you, mate. But $1,000 is so much money to me. And uh, and I was like, but I was like, sure. So we leaned into it. So I think that was the early stages of me coming from the, the high performance college background, but then getting exposure to these high-flying, mm. super rich people and successful people of going, they definitely lean into challenge. Mm. And they really and like, and- yeah, risk, challenge, and being disruptors. It yeah. was really interesting. Because, And this is why I'm so glad that we got to go through your story because you said mm. you probably don't talk about any of that I've stuff never ever. Told yeah. Well, thank you for sharing <laughs> it because now I think that's going to really set up as we move through to the um, sports high-performance psychology where you're working now with Surfing Australia, but also your corporate high performance psychology, you've been in that environment around super successful people and you'd see common traits, you'd see the same challenges that they're talking about, complaining about the same, not the same, but the nuanced stuff. But there's generally like, you know, you see patterns in certain Mm. people like that. And that's why I'm sure you're so good at what you do now with working with high performers because you've kind of seen all these different versions of it. So what happens after Hawaii? come back to Australia when do you go from kinesiology tennis coaching to um psychology yeah well I did a little stint in the Maldives okay. for that but that didn't work out too well they had some civil unrest and whatnot so I was in Maldives came home Maldives for what um tennis coaching oh, okay but Jim Curia had a set up there and and whatnot um but I came home reached out to Monash and they were like no <laughs> like opera the medical board was like yeah but you haven't done this, this, and this, to just jump straight into a master's. So I had to do a bridging course um, for yeah, a bit over a year, which actually was really, really good because Monash is yeah one of probably the best um, psych schools in, in Australia and it was really good to, to learn more in-depth stuff there. So you had to do like a bit of a baseline entry-level course to then do the master's in psychology. Yeah. Does it carry over much like your kinesiology and um, physiology stuff from – 
America? Yeah, well, I mean, it's all one organism. When some people say, you know, my mental health and my physical health, yeah. I was like, yeah, but it's one thing. Yeah, absolutely. And one influences the other. It's very bi-directional. Mm. So um, understanding the depth of biology and physio- physiology that I did definitely helped me when I went into neuro and and uh, more the psychology-based aspects of it. Um, and then being in sport too, that crossover really helped. So I'm actually really thankful I did more of the physiology mm. exercise nutrition stuff first because it all affects absolutely your psychology why psychology what what drew you to it um i like i think the connection with engineering first is i like to know how things work mm-hmm. but then i really like to know how people work and why they work yeah and then tennis i was never the best tennis player never had the best weapons but i felt that my strength was understanding that the the chess game within the game mm. and i would win by outsmarting them tactically yeah and so that mental side of it was was really important to me and also i think i lost a lot of games because i was a bit of a hothead and i got very frustrated on the court so i was very interested in what makes people um succeed and how people move through adversity and pressure and challenge interesting Okay, so let's talk about now the couple of years at Monash to get a new degree. And then you said you, you got a clinical degree rather than the full sports psychology route. Can you explain maybe the difference between what those courses and degrees look like yeah. and why you went in the psychology degree and then transition? So I was fortunate when I came back here, I met um Jonah Oliver, who is probably Incredible. one of Australia's most well-renowned sports psychologists. Cam Smith, sports psych, eh? Cam Smith, sports psych, working with Live Golf now. So he's probably one of the better off sports psychs around the, around the place and um, met him through a friend. We didn't even know. We were just um, having a drink out one night and um, remember chatting to him and he had just helped UQ rewrite their sports psych masters and he was like, don't do it. <laughs> and I was like, what? And he said, look, you can do it, but he's like, he really does sort of pigeonhole you a little bit in just doing sport. Yeah. Um, so he said, but if that's all you want to do, then then do that masters. But he was more saying it's not as well rounded a um, course. course. Doing a psychology <clears throat> course. And then I took that on board and then I thought, well, my end goal is definitely to be with high performance. Mm. But then I'd done enough psych to understand that really what it is about is behavioral change. Mm. And you need to understand the fundamental essence of the the yeah. human psyche mm. to best be able to implement behavioral change. Absolutely. And so I thought, what's the hardest, craziest deep end I could jump into? It's like one, finish your clinical because that's really difficult. Yeah. So it's like, okay, well, if I've got clinical, then I'm board certified, medical board of Australia, I can do whatever I want. Yeah. I learned some stuff in that degree for sure. But it was only afterwards that the, the work really begins, like like most uni degrees. Yeah, you get the degree, but then it's working with patients where you start to yeah. actually have your hands-on case studies that you yeah. start to really understand stuff. So I go, what's the hardest population to make change in? And what I came up with was Outback Queensland, the highest suicidality rate in all of Australia, wow. uh, one of the highest um, rates of depression per capita. Um, and I had a wonderful opportunity to work for a not-for-profit, Outback Futures, um, a remote mental health um, and allied health service. Wow. Did FIFO out there. 
which is extremely challenging. Um, and it's hard on, on many levels. Um, I think we're very sheltered in the city, as they call it. Mm. Um, just, just in terms of our um, emotional vocab, we take it for granted that we can have conversations like you have with your guests about and using language to describe how you're feeling. That's normal. Mm. That doesn't happen anywhere near that level in the outback because you're supposed to be stoic and mm. strong and men don't talk about their emotions openly like that because that's the sign of weakness. And so they're not exposed to that language. And so it's very difficult as a clinician to make change when there isn't even a base of language mm. to be able to communicate what's going on. Themselves. So I had lots of, when I was starting off, not knowing much at all, trying to make change with people that couldn't communicate what was going on. So it was very difficult populations. Yeah, that's, that with. seems so fascinating because I was going to ask you, what do you put it down to the reason why the suicidality rate is so high there, why the um, depression rates are so high? And I'd have my guesses, but mm. the use of language, I'd, obviously one of the main ones would be the idea of like men being strong, stoicism, um, yeah. you know, farmers sort of outback culture. I get that, but the lack of language, I wouldn't have really put my finger on that. It's its very hard to yeah let people know how you're feeling. One, if you're scared to go there because of the judgment, but then also not even having the language to go there. It's fascinating. But if you grew up and dad was a grazier, <clears throat> ringer, they're on the land and everything is harsh, like the mm. Aussie outback is harsh and that's, what you do each day and you come back and that's the only thing you talk about. Mm. No wonder you don't have the vocab to describe emotions. It's you've never seen it. Yeah. You've never heard it. And anytime anyone does, it's a sign of weakness. Mm. So you just got to harden up and have that bottle of concrete and that's how you get through stuff. Um, <clears throat> so that's challenging. There is um, really low literacy rates. So we had um, learning and literacy practitioners. We had speeches and, and whatnot, really low literacy. Um, and that reading and writing, really the benefit of that is you can think and problem solve better. Mm. As I said to kids that come to me and they're like, you know, I don't want to go to school. I was like, learn to read and write because you writing is the neural um, ability for you to conceptualize your problems into problem solve to think that's the main reason you should at least go to school yeah. apart from the socialization one but learn to read and write learn to write in particular because that's how you think interesting but, yeah i haven't thought of that either that's, yeah that's fascinating <clears throat> as well like i just think the main thing when i talk to kids at school and stuff is like learning how to learn yes that's like one of the main things is like when you leave school like learning how to ask the right questions to solve a problem because at school we get this like pigeonhole of like there's like a right and a wrong answer but then you finish school and there's like 20 different ways to get to 20 yeah. different answers which solve the same problem so i was like i feel like learning like okay how do i learn to problem solve and Definitely. obviously it comes back to that language and learning how to communicate effectively because if we can't communicate effectively then we can't get to the solutions that we're looking for well and what's the whole point of communicating yeah people forget it Mm. point of communicating is so the other person understands yeah. what you're trying to get across exactly and so that's contextual yeah depends on so there's, there's a language requirement there um so i definitely lost a few g's at the end of words when i was out there and, and whatnot it's just having a base level of communication and using um language that they understand for sure 
Um, and I think the other part is they're just they're forgotten. Mm. They're just forgotten people, and um, everything's focused around the cities. Um, there's not a huge desire to know. I, I feel to know much about outback communities, and then there's challenges within indigenous populations as well, where it's really tough for them to go and um, ask for help because in some cases they don't want to go see the clinicians because if they come back to mob previously, and things changing a lot now, but previously mob would say that, no, you've gone and done that. And so they're in a really tough position. And then there's just so much intergenerational trauma out there. And that was really tough to deal with. Yeah, Yeah, How was that? You're first thrown to the deep end. Like you said, you wanted to give yourself a challenge. Yeah. Uh, how was that as a young man who's sort of lived a pretty, I guess you'd call privileged life, living yeah. in um Hawaii, being the coach of the yeah. team that's well funded, working at the rich and famous resort, to have that culture shift back to your own country? How was that for you to deal with as a young man trying to like understand the world? Yeah, it, it was very challenging personally. Um, it was very challenging days out there because you just pack in your days with seeing so many and the people's stories. So I very much learned how I had to learn to um, compartmentalize Bad. people's stories because it doesn't work if you're not engaged as a clinician. Mm. So it's really hard to not take on the emotionality because mm-hmm. there's just so much, yeah, like hectic stuff that's happened for sure. So oh, I learned that. But also I'm thankful for it because sitting with a client that doesn't want to be here as in here here Mm. anymore is the most nerve-wracking thing ever because you feel responsible and so to work through that of going yeah there is i have to be okay with the fact that no matter what i do there's a possibility that this person won't be here and that's not my fault um, that's really challenging. <clears throat> and even saying that, like that, that brings back a lot of emotions with me too, because that's, that, that's really tough. Um, but the responsibility for that is massive. And so helping someone work through the ultimate decision. And I work with a lot of surfers around decision-making in the ocean, but the ultimate decision, whether to literally be here anymore or not, that's when I was like, now I'm at the point where this is the most challenging thing I've ever done in my life. Yeah, wow. And the responsibility of that is massive. Um, And if I can make change with someone to want to be here and actually not just be here for other people but be here for themselves and to live a fulfilling, fruitful life, then that's something worth worth fighting for and and discovering. Wow. Thank you for sharing that, man. It's something that I myself, and I'm sure many of the listeners right now never really reflect on and think about the weight that is on psychologists' shoulders. Mm. And it is, yeah, obviously something that a lot of people are pushed towards and there's so much awareness around going and seeing psychologists. But I think, and I asked this um, to Jace Patchell, who's the Mm. other um, sports psych at Surfing Australia, when he came on the podcast, like how he deals with it too. And it's like, Mm. he was like, Thank you for asking. Like, mm. not many people actually take the time, and that's why it's um so beautiful to hear you reflect on that. And it reminds me of I had um when I did my mental health first aid course, the psychologist lady who took us through it, she let us know that her son or daughter's partner, like eighteen year old son or year twelve high school, 
took his own life and she's like, I was with this kid every single day. Like she was mm. at my house with her. And like for me, it was so hard and I have to remind myself this and that was this was part of the lesson she tied it into while we're doing our mental health first aid course is like all you can ever do is your absolute best and try to help someone but if they don't want to be here and they make that final decision to let go of it, it's so hard. And like if you're dealing with clients every day who are on that verge, like fire out, it must be hard. Like, yeah. But good on you, man, because as much as like you said, it's incredible to make – someone maybe perform a bit better in their surf contest. Jesus yeah. got to feel good to make somebody shift their perspective of not wanting to live to wanting to live and then seeing them thrive in the next part of their life. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And you, you know, it, it's kind of like, um, almost joke around with it. You kind of feel like an acupuncturist when you know you've hit the spot. There's a huge emotional release that happens, um, with the individual and seeing that is like, the best feeling because you know that there's a physiological and a neurological shift in that person. Mm. That's a great feeling for sure. Um, but ultimately I did get burnt out with that and and I did that for a couple of years and then moved out of it and hats off to the people still doing that. That's incredible. That was going to be, thank you for sharing that part because I wanted to do one again to the support side of stuff and yeah. I've only got another <laughs> like 25 minutes with you. So what was that next stage? How do you go from clinical psychology helping people really with obviously mental illness, mental health struggles to then the performance side of stuff. Obviously you had the background in it with the sport, the tennis, you go into the hard stuff, the deep end, not that the stuff you're doing now isn't the hard stuff, but maybe a little less emotionally yeah. draining on yourself. It can be more from a performance side. So when did, um, I want to go into burnout actually real quickly because you said you burnt out there before you transitioned because that might actually take us into where you went to the sport. Yeah. Tell me about the next stage in burnout and how you dealt with that and the pivot that obviously came. I quit on the spot. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but, but that was more... Was there a moment? Was there something that... That was more organisationally. Okay. Yeah, wasn't happy with the lack of appreciation that they had for what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And so I think that piqued my interest in organisational teams yeah. for sure and that's where I'm doing a lot of work at the moment. Um, wrong hires, um, wrong culture, everything changed and it wasn't what I originally signed up for so got out. And, um, <clears throat> and then I was chatting to Jonah and, um, and, and talking to Jonah about getting back into sport and I was, had some tennis clients and was doing some stuff and, and um, he said, yeah, just try and find a sport and jump into it and just get exposure into that, even if it's a sport that you're not that keen on. And then Patchy. Do you surf? <laughs> no. Well, yeah, but poorly, very, very poorly. So, you know, I'm not going to say no. I'm not going to say yes with, with you, but yeah, yeah. very, very poorly. Um, and uh, I was in Hawaii at the time. I was back in Hawaii seeing my, my sister and my, my friends over there. And Patchy contacted me for a role at Surfing Australia. How did you know Patchy? Didn't. Patchy knew Jonah. Okay. Jonah said, hey. Oh, and Jonah was, <clears throat> Patchy was asking Jonah, do you know any up-and-coming yeah. psychs that yeah. fit, we need a second in yeah. team at the Surfing Oz? Yeah. And it was just for this one day a week role and then thankful for the team, gave me the opportunity. We did some really good work and then the pathway role came up and I uh, was fortunate to, to take that role as well. Wow. Um, and so jumped straight into an an AIS national role 
um, with um, a sport that I always wanted to work with. That's and just emerging. Wow. Yeah. So Did, was there any any extra education you had to do to go into the sports psychology stuff, or was it just your prior knowledge plus obviously you have multiple degrees from your physiology um uh, uh, kinesiology and then psychology degrees like probably far more qualified than a lot of the sports psychologists yeah. out there and the mindset coaches that yeah. pop up everywhere nowadays yeah um so yeah not too much extra but then obviously immersing yourself in a different sport you got to learn the culture you got to learn the- yeah i think by then i had done maybe eight or nine years i think nine years of tertiary study by then so i was was like i've done enough i can cross (laughs) this stuff over yeah but you still got to do the work and so i was very thankful for that time before uh, after i um finished my studies that i found a supervisor that was just incredible Mm -hmm. and that's where i learned my really really good therapeutic skills and a lot of time uh, a lot of money (laughs) a lot of effort and i saw it as training yeah i saw it as as hitting balls that I was used to in, in tennis. Mm-hmm. So I'd record our sessions and listen to it on, on runs and whatever. And I, and I thought that um, I need to view my psychological skills the same way as I viewed my tennis, which I've got to get in reps. I've got to keep learning, keep getting better. Yeah. And that was that drive for me. And you don't, at the end of the day, Everyone that works at Surfing Australia is the best in yeah. the area. I think we've got an incredible team. Mm. So you don't get the opportunity then, because I would have been found out pretty quick. Yeah. Um. To to then do what I've done now, and I thank that, and I'm very thankful for the opportunity to learn that from my supervisor because he's just incredible, and we worked really hard at those skills. So um, yeah, and that brings us to now. <laughs> yeah, and and here we are now. So now I um, I want to just talk just quickly a little about just overall why exercise is important when it comes to our mental health because I think there's no one obviously more qualified to sit here with me and talk about mental health and psychology but then also how it can be practical for people listening right now who sit in their car going like okay why should I be exercising and tell me the physiology and the crossover with our mental health and like what should be a goal for your average person and I know I spoke to you about this off air and I said I might ask you some specific questions and it's going to be different for every person but let's just talk about some of the data and some of the stuff that there is around exercise and mental health. So I was fortunate enough to do a webinar series on this as I told you off air during COVID for Outback Communities in particular. and it was really interesting diving into the research on that. And what we found is that exercise is one of the most beneficial things you can do for your mental health. Mm. Why? There's three main things. One, serotonin. Um, two, you've got your um, endorphins that you get from it. And then this um, brain, the BDN is brain-derived Dera- neurotropic, um, neurotropic factor, right? You're all over it. <laughs> Look at me. I'm You're all over it. Yeah, you've got it. Um, <laughs> BDNF. BDNF. And so the cool thing there is that as a psychologist, yeah, people ask about um, prescribing SSRIs Mm -hmm. Um, and for for depression. Yeah. And there was a whole lot of stuff come up last year because there's this big- Adelaide. Meta-analysis. In Adelaide? that. Adelaide University, sorry. Yeah, potentially. Adelaide University is doing a few different things on a few different levels in psych. But essentially um, the headlines were um, SSRIs don't work. That's not quite the truth. They work in terms of getting people from major depression to not being um, suicidal and being able to do their things. We just They don't work the way we thought they worked in the sense of that they're um, 
in the serotonergic pathways, right? So serotonin, um, the happy hormone is what people call it. And I suppose you've, you've talked to some neuroscientists uh, about it. I talk about, I love that you're going down this angle because I have my opinions on SSRIs and I've read yeah. a few different books that I'm just like, Australia is the second most, most prescribed country yeah. per capita. And it's like. So I, yep, yeah, straight away don't. I said, and unless there's, there's a, re- there is a reason, like if, if, if we're like catatonic and you, and there's a whole issue around um, suicidality risk, great. But apart from that, there's so many other things that are going to influence it so much more. So the reason is, as the name suggests, with serotonin selective reuptake inhibitors, they don't actually increase serotonin the way that we thought they did. They actually they inhibit the reuptake of it, mm. right? So they're just really the way to look at SSRIs is they increase your capacity to tolerate distress. Mm-hmm. That's important. It doesn't make you any happier. It's not a silver bullet. So explain this to clients. It's like, yeah, you can do that if you're needing to not get too low, right? That's what it's for. It's like a safety <clears throat> net to catch you if you're really going to that yeah. crazy dark place. But it, it it's the heavy stuff. You can't just come off it and then you shouldn't be on it for more than nine months. That's dangerous territory, right? And a lot of people are on them forever. Yeah, just GPs just handed out. Right now, there's some very, very good GPs, but they also haven't done a huge amount of work in psychopharmacology, the majority of them. And a lot of it, this is from the research in like the 50s and 60s, which is yes. now all shown that, well, like you were just saying, it yeah. works differently, but there's been billions of dollars being into the industry every year. Yep. So it's like, oh, can't just turn the tap off. No. Anyway. So anyway, we bring that back to exercise because yes. exercise, especially aerobic exercise, mm-hmm. which means moving, um, running getting the heart rate up in the heart rate up um that uh shunts uh, neurotoxin um tryptophan into serotonin production so you actually increase the amount of serotonin in in your brain Mm -hmm. so that's fantastic secondly you you release endorphins so you feel good why because um evolutionarily um it made sense that if you got to get away from a threat tiger or something like that let's give you um some molecules to be able to actually do that for a period of time and actually want to do it again, right? So it's mm-hmm. like, that's why we're running. It's kind of going into that evolutionary hangover of, yeah, we ran away from the tiger. Mm-hmm. We've got to at least make this feel good. So then you can either do it for longer or do it again. So that's kind of using that biology. So yeah. then we feel we have that, and you've probably looked at runner's high. Yeah, um, we'll get into this in a little bit. That was really interesting, my time with the um, in Hawaii with the um, Ironman people are running the next day like what are you doing so there's a runner's high thing for there um and then there's this neuroplasticity that happens in the brain bdnf uh bdf um from uh this plasticity of going you've you've run and then the brain seems to be at a more plastic state to then learn and develop things more Mm. which which has a positive effect on your mental health yes like exercise it's so important and it's not just Cause it makes you, and then like, there's all the other factors of like, Hey, your body image might improve if you exercise a little bit more, which is going to yeah. make you feel a bit better about yourself. You're going to feel not guilty that oh, I'd haven't exercised in so long. Like, so many things, but I just love that you went into the science part of yeah. why exercise is important. It's about producing these chemicals that literally make you happier Yep. rather than trying to use a pill to block something that 
might make you less sad. Yeah, and then the, <laughs> and then the cardiovascular benefits too mm. is that the number one um, killer in America and Australia is heart disease. Yeah, wow. Um, plaque buildup. So if we're actually using the engine, it's getting the heart rate mm. up, it's like a car. If the car sits there for a long period of time and you don't use it, stuff starts to get a little bit um, degraded mm. and, and it doesn't work as well. It's not lubricated. Yeah. The body's the same. You either use it or you lose it. Yeah. And so from our cardiovascular point of view, there's so many different um, organs that benefit from the cardiovascular system that's, that's yeah, at its peak. Out, yeah. So one big thing is, is also, which is quite prevalent with men, is erectile dysfunction too. Uh -huh. So there's a link between cardiovascular endurance and um, sexual drive and ability. Yeah, wow. Sure. Fascinating. Mm. Fascinating. One last thing I just want to talk about now, obviously I've got this 100-kilometer run coming up. I wanted to get a performance psychologist on and someone who can talk to me about what's going to go through my mind because obviously with endurance sports, from the research I've done from reading books and speaking to a lot of endurance athletes, the the preparation for the physical is one thing, mm. but the mental is something that you never really know where your mind's going to go. I personally feel like quietly confident that I've got like this weird like psychological tricks that I do myself of just like, I don't even know where I'm going to go, to be honest, on the hundreds. <laughs> I can't I, I can't predict because I've never done that sort of run. So what's the sort of – is there anything that I should be doing, do you think, in the lead-up to this 100K? I've got 13 weeks. Is there any psychology ticks, tricks or things that I should be thinking when things get tough during my runs? What sort of advice would you have for me now? And then maybe we'll talk about during race in yeah. a little bit. Well, what I say to the athletes that I work with is like, at the base, just because you surf good, does that mean that you should perform good, right? And it's going, <clears throat> not necessarily, right? So, and then you hear this a lot, like I free surf so well, yeah. but in competition, I find it really difficult. Mm -hmm. Well, why is that? So, well, firstly, just from that, again, that evolutionary point of view, we see competition as a survival threat. Mm. So, firstly, it's like normalizing that, that, the understanding that if you lose in competition, evolutionarily, it was if you lose, then potentially die. you could die. Yeah. So there's that survival thing. And then there's the social hierarchy that are massive in apes in particular, yeah. is that you see this in, in the incredible ape documentaries and stuff, but we're, we're quite similar that if you go down that social hierarchy, which is from competition, then you have less reproduction rights, you have less um, options to, to food and resources, right? So our brain still has that mammalian brain, the limbic system there where we house all, all our emotions. It's going, hey, if I lose this competition or if I don't do as well in this competition, there's serious results. So our brain's just this big old threat detection system. Mm -hmm. So it's going to create noise because you care about it, yeah. right? And so why do we worry? We worry because we care. So firstly, setting that up of going, let's not assume that just because you're really good at a sport or a particular activity, let's not assume that you can do that on demand when it matters most in front of lots of people and something that you care deeply about. Mm -hmm. Let's not assume that. That's not fair. Yeah. Right? Um, so how do you acquire any other skills? Is you've got to, sure, learn how to do the thing at the start. And then there's a journey of skill development, skill acquisition, and reps. And so the analogy that I like to use that I heard from Jonah is that 
why do we look at psych as the only come to me when something's wrong or like i got to prepare for this one thing, mm. right? which is a good, sometimes a really good place to start. But what are you currently doing right now to prepare for the physical side of it? Oh, so much stuff. Yeah, so, so much, much stuff, lost, right? Yeah, yeah. Why? Because I want to know that my body can handle it. Exactly. There's an acknowledgement that there's an innate physiological demand on your body. Mm-hmm. That's the first step. So you go, I have to get my body physiologically ready to endure, to have a higher capacity to tolerate the stress physically. Yeah, impact, yeah, yeah. Right? So then you build that capacity slowly to develop the capacity to endure that. And so, I'm going, why isn't psych the same? Well, that's why I'm asking you this right? question <laughs> right now, 14 weeks early. See, I'm being smart. You're I'm being a, smart. I'm curious enough that I understand and obviously being in the mental health industry yeah. and really clued in, not, not really clued into this stuff, but really curious about this stuff. That's why I'm. That's why I've got you on as one of my first guests. The psychology aspect of it, because yeah. obviously the coaching was one part of it, but now speaking to a psych, I think was a really important early step in this. Rather than just doing it the week before, it would just be very naive to think, oh, just a, a sentence that you tell me is yeah. going to help me run better on the day. I'm sure there maybe is a few cues and techniques yeah. that when I start going like, why do you have to do this? Asking those question there might be a few like triggers to turn but i can't expect it just happen overnight that's why i'm really curious to ask that question like what may be on the build-up obviously i'm doing the physical what are maybe some of the mental things that i could be doing to prepare myself for that mental strain that's going to come through 18 hours of racing yeah absolutely and that's the first step just to acknowledge (laughs) that it's going to be tough and because we don't we just kind of skip that bit that we don't even acknowledge that there's a psychological load that goes with doing stuff at a super high level something that you care a lot about mm. especially like an ultra that's psychologically hugely demanding yeah. so then we need to build that capacity so that that's step one what does that look like yeah. one, one thing sorry i just want to chuck in because this is how i look at stuff like this and it, it is a bit different but i've like had this like switch recently in the last couple of years and it's helped me so much is like really not anticipating something it yeah. seems like such a waste of mental energy thinking like oh my god i'm gonna this is gonna be such a nightmare like i'm just like wait until it comes to the day and then just deal with it on the day rather than have build up of like worry about what's coming like mm. preparation's different to worry correct like i just yeah. feel like so many people are like oh i've got that bloody 20 hours of travel to get to la and then here like and the week of worrying about it's worse than the actual you're gonna have to do it anyway so yeah. you may as well just get to the day and do it and that's that that funny saying that that happiness is reality minus expectation yeah there you go sometimes expectation is a lot larger um and so but the worry is your brain's way of making you pay attention to something that's really important to you or rehearse doing something right. And so it's giving you noise to to think about this, mm. right? Which firstly is is normal, right? And just acknowledging that that, that that's normal like yeah. that. Um I, I think it's a really good first stage. Um <clears throat> and then you're like, okay, well what can we do about it? So my my personal approach is I'm quite eclectic and bring a few things together. There's the the sense of self that needs to be 
um, address. The, who are you that you bring into a performance? Mm-hmm. People might call it attitude. There's an optimal sense of self that exists in you for the very fact that you are in this room right now in front of me talking to me about to do an ultra, right? Otherwise, if there wasn't a sense of self that has the answers that is an ultimate performer, then you wouldn't even be in this position, mm. right? So let's work out what that is and all the components of that because there's this idea that every single athlete gets nervous in every single situation. I'm going, let's not assume that because we've both seen some guys in jaws and pipe that sure there might be some physiological stuff, but they wouldn't use the word nervous. They'd use something else, right? There's some sort of excitement or there's Mm. something else. So there's a sense of self that's highly competent Mm. that they bring into a situation. So I go looking at that first. Then secondly, there's this contextual part that let's have a look at the context that the the pressure is in and let's look at some specific tools in order to enable you to um, do what matters when it matters. And Mm. that's probably where we want to go now here. And so there's two trains of thoughts there is that the old school approach was like, just be positive, (laughs) just think positive. And you still hear this on the WSL. Like I'm just with with Pipe and Sunset on now. I'm listening to the commentators and they're like, oh, he's just got to calm down out there or she looks so calm and and relaxed and whatever. And I remember having a conversation with a with an athlete recently and he said he, he just won um, nationals um, um, down in Phillip Island. And he goes, I was so calm and I was so confident. So I just need to be more calm and confident. And I said, hey, I'm not saying that when you're calm and confident that you perform your best. I totally agree with that. I think everyone agree with mm. that. What I'm asking is how easy is it to be calm and confident every single time you perform when you've just copped a set on the head, you've been held under, you've gone over the falls, you've mm. <clears throat> absolutely messed it up, all your friends and family are there and you've just absolutely had a shocker. How possible is it to be calm there? The tennis player, when you've just done two double faults in a row in front of 1,000, 10,000 people, Mm. how possible is it to be calm? So I'm not disagreeing with the fact that if you're positive, happy and calm, you play your best. Absolutely. I'm just questioning, one, how possible that is in um, every time you play. Two, how much control do you have over that? How much control do you have of your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions? And the research is very, very clear. We have little to none. <laughs> How many thoughts do you have every single day? I've actually heard this. I'm excited to hear how you answer this because I heard it used to be like sixty to 80,000 was thing. And then I spoke to Nicole, this neuroscientist who's been on my podcast a few times recently, and she said they've changed it to now thinking it's six to 8,000 thoughts a day. Your number I don't know, know the number and I'm not willing to go on the record, <laughs> but it's a but ton. It's a lot. And I don't know about you, but if I was held accountable to the thoughts that I had every day, oh, I like, don't know if I'd be allowed in society. It's like 75% of them are negative and 95% are repetitive. It's like... And the example that I give is, have you ever been driving and there's a cyclist next to you and you have the thought, what if I hit the cyclist? Yeah. Is that just me? As in like, yeah. as in like aggressively hit them because they're no, annoying. just just what like, if? What would happen if just I what accidentally? If, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. accidentally. Just yeah. what if? Yeah. Now that sounds terrible. 
But what your brain's actually doing is making you aware that there's a threat there and to a avoid it. Yeah, yeah. Or if you're at a cliff and you go, what happens if I fall over the cliff? Exactly. You're yeah. not bloody suicidal. <laughs> Your brain's going, there's a threat and I'm detecting it and I'm giving you... What if I give this guy... Yeah, yeah, I don't want this... Imagine what would happen if for some reason he swerved into me. (laughs) So that's what happens. Our prefrontal cortex in particular... I do those what-ifs all the time. ...is literally evolutionarily designed to to detect threats. Mm. So we get an absolute plethora of thoughts... every day. ...every single day that is just this threat detection. Mm. And... People with different personalities, the more neurotic personality type, they're going to get even more of that, Mm -hmm. right? So there are some personality trait genetic stuff in there as well. But the point is we're not our thoughts and we can't be. So to then try and have control over that, this evolutionary process is crazy. Mm. Now, even if you can't, because some people go, I'm going to, I can do it. Mm. Okay, let's say that you can control your thoughts and feelings in that moment. Is that the best time of mental resource, best use of mental resources, yeah. best use of your time? And what are you actually taking away from that? Because most attempts to control uh, internal um, dialogue is from suppression or distraction. Mm. Now, if you're trying to suppress the unwanted feelings or you're trying to distract yourself from unwanted experiences, then it's taken away from the number one indicator of performance, which is focus. Yeah, presence. Can you focus on the task? That's the number one indicator of performance. But there's a ton of things that affect your focus. Yeah. So that approach is going, well, if we can't change our thoughts and any attempts to try and do it is is taken away from the thing, then what can we do? What are we left with? Well, that's where you know, Joan and myself and Patchy really work on acceptance-based techniques, mm. which um, very basically is that we need a capacity to get some distance from our thoughts, emotions, and feelings and see them for what they are and not get too entangled and caught up with them. And there's this fantastic chessboard analogy done by Russ Harris that's on um, YouTube that um, would be great if you put that in the show notes, Farron, because I I send that to all our TID notes. And I think it it just really summarizes what we're talking about incredibly well. And essentially it's that if we get caught up with the battle of of black and white, good and bad thoughts, then we we get hooked by it. And it's an internal battle. It goes on and on and mm. on. So the idea is to try and see them as thoughts, emotions, and feelings as a distance, acknowledge them, and open up and create room for them. So bringing that back to your specific yeah. thing, the psychological technique is called opening up, I'd say is like the, the thing to work on. So we need to build a capacity to be more open to our thoughts, emotions, and feelings because you're going to get a ton when mm. you're doing bloody 100k ultra right because your threat detection is going off so first thing is acknowledging is the first step and normalizing that yeah my brain's going to go hey this is hurting yeah you shouldn't do this you could do you're going to get a lot of those things right um and open up and acknowledge that the way to train that is i think very basically and people can can do this at home is in all areas of your life trying to be more open to 
unwanted internal experiences. And one very simple way you can do that is from the Eastern practices that we've found is that you could do a two-minute meditation where you sit there, you close your eyes, and you try and connect to the observing self, Mm. the witnesser of your experience. And the technique that I like to work on is that you're like, sitting in a tree above a stream and you're watching the thoughts, emotions, feelings get carried down the stream on a leaf. Mm, I love that one. You've probably seen that one before. And I think that's actually Ross Harris. Yeah, Yeah. I I think I use that one in some of my guided meditations. Yeah. Guide some sometimes. And being more more open to um, them being there, genuinely surrendering to them, getting distance, and being aware when you get really hooked by them and then shifting our focus back to task relevant mm. things. And, and and Djokovic talks about this a lot. See, I do that a lot. I just like laugh sometimes. I've like yeah. internally like laugh at myself when I catch. Stupid example, but like if I dropped an egg, I, I just know so many people who get angry. Like mm. the first reaction is to get pissed off. Oh, I can't mm. I'm like, if you didn't mean to do it, then fuck, why are you going to let that? Like, I like yeah. laugh when I like kick my toe and I'm like, oh, I could have like, or I drop a glass and I'm like, I just so many people get angry at it. And now I'm just like, oh, am I really going to like make the choice to let something that I didn't mean to do take me into this yeah. like state of anger? Yeah. So I just feel like I'm going to use that a lot in the run of like, I've put myself into this. I'm going to tell myself like so often that I don't want to be doing it, but then I'll just yeah. laugh and be like, what do you mean? You, yeah. you do want to do it. You like, you know, it's like, I like internally laugh myself so much when I want to like bite. I feel like meditation and breath work has really helped me create yeah. the space between reaction and like response to a stimulus or to a normally something that would catch me is there, mm. is there something in that yeah and and i even like the example of with the egg because what i'm saying to my surfers like in particular getting ready for pipe what we were chatting about with the fear that goes mm. with that is is genuine right but it can't just be practiced or maybe it shouldn't just be practiced in in the water and sure context is specific and as much as so i try and do stuff on the beach mm. with the athletes try and get out there in the water myself yeah. which is just terrible but <laughs> try and do as much as i can because context is important but the reps is what's also important mm. right we need to get reps so we do a lot of stuff out of the water and it's everyday opportunities like if you do break an egg great let's look at that for what it is and i think um, language is so important. So one language, one sentence um, to to say in that is going, I notice Cooper is feeling angry. Mm. And it's subtle, but what you're actually doing is you're setting up linguistically a distance from self because mm. what you notice differently is people say, I am angry. Mm. I'm frustrated. You go, no, you're not. You're Cooper. Mm. Right? You are the essence of who you are is separate to your day-to-day, your moment-to-moment feelings and experiences. But when you say, I am angry, you end up responding from the point of view of that emotion. And therefore, you get caught up or hooked Mm. by that emotion, which means that it's then going to influence your performance. you believe it and then you take it on with you for longer. Yeah, I think that detachment is, yeah, just, and I think it all just comes back to self-awareness. The more that we practice meditation and stuff and it's meditation for me is not necessarily about the direct practice and the direct feeling five minutes afterwards it's more so the increased self-awareness in every aspect of my life in 
not back catching onto those thoughts and believing those thoughts. Like I love how you say you're not your thoughts. Like they're just mm. thoughts. And then I love um. I don't know if you've heard of Dr. Nicole LaPera from um, she's like the holistic psychologist, but she talks this idea of like you're not your self-beliefs either. And the more I'm like leaning into that when I go like I'm shit with money, it's like, no, you say that because you've been grown up in that environment and it's like learning, trying to go back to the roots and like detaching from anything yeah. and going like I'm not my self-beliefs as much as I'm not my thoughts. Like I can reshape them however I want if I have the self-awareness that these are just things that come up because of past experiences. Yeah. And and that's very much the contextual stuff that I actually do secondary because yeah. this the self is what I work yeah. a lot with there. And what we were chatting about before is that um why I'm somewhat hesitant to give more general um tips and tools. And I and I really do appreciate that that that's the way to that a lot of people think that I need a tool in order yeah, yeah. to do this. Um, and that's really, really important, especially contextually in in the moment, to have a tool to go yeah, to. Yeah. But let's acknowledge that you're an athlete 24-7 mm. and there's a sense of self that goes with doing all these things. And so that needs to be worked with because we don't do negative stuff for no reason. Mm. And actually understanding that psychologically our brain has is set up to be a defense mechanism to experiences that we have. That's what people joke around mm. like, why do you always go back in time? Why do, why do psychs need to yeah, yeah. regress to childhood? It's, it, it's like, well, something's happened that's taught you that either doing something or not doing something is really, really bad. Yeah. So your brain has gone, let's never experience this again. That mm. sucked. So let's create this defense mechanism. Now, that defense mechanism works to avoid that um, terrible experience that you had. But in doing so, creates a neurotic experience for the individual that's problematic. So the actual intent is benevolent to Mm. begin with from the subconscious. But the way it's then manifested in reality is maladaptive, right? And the best example of that is perfectionism. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because you must deal with that a lot with athletes and as well in like an uncontrollable athlete. Um, sport like surfing is just like yeah. Oof, yeah perfectionism is i think something that we could probably end up having a full podcast about but i'm conscious of your time i said i'd yes. let you out of here at one and it's five past one so i'm going to bring in the last question that i do ask everyone and i'm really excited to hear what you answer this but i'm also hopefully can maybe get you back on for another topic or two as we move on through the sort of next couple of years of good humans podcast i've always wanted like a young psychologist who i feel like can relate a lot with me and maybe we can go and now that i know your background that it's not just the sports psychology there it's the clinical stuff and i'm sure you probably are, still have that desire to maybe really be able to share the knowledge that you've had in a way that people can digest it and have wide impact i know working directly as a um, clinician you work specifically with so many patients which is amazing but having a podcast which i know you're launching your own at the moment gives you a wider voice and hopefully through my platform with the good human factor and people being quite open to mental health information and education. Um, maybe we can get you on a sort of in-house every now and every Definitely. six months or something and talk about topics that the community wants to know about. Cause 
like I said, I could talk all day with you about this. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And even like that last one with perfectionism, I think that's massive in in performance right now and decision-making and risk-taking. There's a number of topics. Exactly, and we didn't go down the corporate route or anything. There's so much I want to talk to you about, but I'm glad we did get to talk about the importance of exercise and mental health. Um, Also talk about your story. It's been so interesting. Like you said, you don't get to go back there that often, but I think it really did set up this whole podcast of understanding your sport background with college, the downfalls that you had, but then moving into, um, I guess you'd call like your entrepreneurial stage of being a coach and then also working at the thing on opening your mind to that corporate world and high performance. And then, yeah, coming and doing your clinical stuff with the um, rural outback Queensland is just such selfless work. And I'm sure the impact you made was massive. But now coming into something that obviously aligns very well with you and your why as an athlete yourself back here on the Gold Coast working with surfers is really cool. But the last question I do ask everyone on this podcast is the same. So what does being a good human mean to Tom Greer-Smear? Um, I think it means being kind-hearted and, and that resonates strongly with, with me. Um, for, for whatever reason, when I'm out in the world being kind-hearted, to two people and helping them that's when i feel most alive and i really like to almost transcend my day-to-day internal experiences here to then be out there in the world and, and helping people um, and making them the, the best version of themselves um, i think it's easy today to get a little bit cold-hearted with mm. everything going on and and opinions and and whatnot and i like to be decisive (laughs) but at the same time do it with a level of kind hardness and and share that around mate beautiful answer and from a psychologist point of view there's a lot of science behind that kindness and people who are kinder happier people i've done a few like courses where a lot of the studies lead to that and it's all once again comes back to those chemicals in our brain when we're kind to people it's releasing chemicals. It's not just like a airy fairy. I just want to be kind, but yeah. it literally kinder people are happier people. So well, and also internally, mm. and a lot of the stuff being I kind talk, to yourself. Yeah, to athletes about it with that perfectionism arm. It's like, hey, if we're being true to ourselves, it's not just being kind-hearted to others. It's being kind-hearted and self-compassionate. Too. Mm. That's what I love. I'll just quickly say, like this idea how we said thousands of thoughts each day ourselves statistically what 75 percent of them for most of the negative imagine if we can just change that internal voice to 50 percent of them are negative to 25 percent of them are negative like the most important relationship you have is the one with yourself if you're having let's call it six thousand negative six thousand thoughts a day four and a half thousand are negative it's over 1.6 million negative thoughts a year imagine what that's doing over your lifetime like yeah let's try and change that so and, it. and, and it takes think. work right it takes and work to change that relationship with our mind it does and you know one more little tool yeah is to thank the brain because mm. it's doing its job mm. if you didn't have those negative thoughts if you didn't have the noise and whatnot then i'd be concerned mm. all right so thank you, Brian, for doing its job. It's just detecting threats and that's okay. Mate, I love that. Well, I guess last thing, where can anyone find you if you want to lead them towards any of your work, if people can work with you outside of obviously Surfing Australia? I know you're doing some corporate stuff. You've got a podcast coming. Yeah. Chance to link anything? I'll put it all in the show notes as well. Yep. Um, just my website. So tgsperformancepsychology.com. Um, and then my Instagram's there is TGS Performance Psychology. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, brother. Appreciate it. I'll let you know how I go in the 100. And yeah, thanks for having hopefully me. my brain can <laughs> deal with all of it. Keen to chat again, mate. Always exciting. Epic. Thanks, Cheers, mate. brother. Cheers. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.